Hey guys, this is Pastor Zach, and you are listening to Sermon Notes here at HPC. So turn with me to the, uh, uh, let's see, 2 Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 1 for a few minutes here. And um, I just, uh, I want to I say a big special thank you to those of you who took up that love offering to buy me an NASB Bible. I appreciate that so much. And uh, yeah, thank you. So I, I am going to get this one rebound because there's something about it. First uh, Samuel, Second Samuel, Third Samuel, Fourth. Just pick one. Second Samuel, Chapter One. This is a story that I have never really liked. It's a story that's always bothered me. I love David. Big hi to Michael and Monique. Love you guys. Home from New Hampshire. So good to see you. The Stetsons, some of our favorite people who help build these screens in here or in here after hours working Dave LeBeau to the grind. Thank you, Michael. And the cookies and everything else. You guys are just the best people in the world. So this is one of those stories that you have to wrestle with. And how many of you guys, how many of you guys occasionally you hear a message or a podcast or a, a sermon or a word and it reminds you that God is not always who you wish he was? Anybody? You're, everybody's like, nah, nah, God's exactly who I want him to be. No, nah, no, nah, he always does it just right. Good answer, because you know he's listening, right? <clears throat> but if we're honest with ourselves, we've got to be willing to admit that, that sometimes we get chaffed and checked and challenged and any other CH word that goes against the grain about, about you know, God not being exactly who we thought he was up until that point. Or maybe we knew he was something different, but we kept wishing we were wrong. And so the Lord in his mercy and his goodness says, actually, no, I still am this guy. And this is one of those stories. It's like a Shakespearean tragedy where like too many people are dying and you're like, what's happening here? If you follow David and Saul's story up to this point, David has spent um, the last several years running from Saul for his life, okay? This wasn't a game of tag. This was a game of there's a reward out for your head. I want you dead, and I'm not going to stop until you are. And Saul is pursuing David through the woods, through the fields, uh, in and out of caves and mountains and valleys and everywhere else, and to a point where David actually has to go live among the Philistines for a minute because, uh, because he's not safe in his homeland. So as Saul is doing this, we come upon the second book of Samuel here. And chapter one, Saul finally dies in a battle against the Amalekites. And just when you think David is going to be like, oh, phew, thank God, this is over. Just when you think David is going to be like, oh, like well, I can sleep at night. Finally, that's not at all what happens. So let's begin reading here in uh, chapter one. It says, now it came about after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, that David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, a man came out to the camp um, with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And it came about when he came to David that he fell to the ground, prostrated himself. And David said to him, where are you from? And he said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did things go? Please tell me. And he said, the people have fled from the battle and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are also dead. So David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the man who told him said, by chance, this is the unluckiest chance this guy ever had, 
By chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and behold, Saul was leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely. They were coming in hot. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And he said, to come. And I said, here I am. He said, who are you? And I answered him, I'm just an Amalekite. And he said to me, please stand beside me and kill me. For agony has seized me because my life still lingers in me. And so I stood beside him and I killed him. It was a mercy killing. Because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown which was on his head and the bracelet which was on his arm. And I've brought them here to you, my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so also did all the men who were with him. I want to stop right there for one second. Then David took his clothes. If you got the King James, it says he rent his clothes. How in the world, just when you were thinking that all of his guys were going to bring out like those party kazoos that unroll, that thing, just when you thought that they were going to bring out a cake and kill the, the, the fatted calf, it's a sackcloth and ashes moment. This doesn't add up. This doesn't work. What's going on? And not only was it David, but this is my first point, it was his men too. Now, the important thing to get here is that these are the same men who a few chapters earlier were like, David, we've got to end this guy. There was a moment where David had taken, I mean, Saul had taken 3,000 of his best soldiers and had pursued David. And at one point, Saul stops and he goes into a cave to relieve himself, the Bible says. And who was hiding in the cave? David and all of his men. And they were so close that they snuck up. David snuck up and cut a piece of Saul's robe off to make the statement that he didn't want to do him harm. But those men, those 300 men, some of David's mightiest warriors who are with him, they're like, David, this is an answer to prayer. The Lord has delivered your enemy into your hands and you can finish him right now on the commode. What's better than that? And David says this line. He says, are you crazy? I'm not, I'm not going to lay a finger on the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to lay a finger. Are you kidding? No, not only am I not, none of you are going to do it either. Do not touch this man. He's anointed of the Lord. So he goes up and he tears a little piece off of his, um, off of his robe and he actually feels guilty about it later. I love it. David, my guy. And he does so to prove a point to Saul and says, Saul, later on when they're like on separate hillsides and there's a valley between them, he calls out, hey, I could have killed you and I didn't, my Lord. I'm not here to harm you. I don't want to do you in. And a couple chapters later in Second, First Samuel 26, same sort of thing happens. David and his men are out hiding from Saul and they watch them from the woods. They watch them go to sleep. And Saul sleeps in the middle with his right-hand guy and the soldiers, the army, three, another 3,000 men are sleeping concentrically encircled around him. And here comes David and Abishai tiptoeing through these snoring soldiers. 
and they get all the way up just close enough to actually take Saul's spear and his water jug. I preached a message on it a while back. But the point is this, Abishai and his right-hand guys, David's guys, they're like, David, this is it. You had a momentary insanity back in that cave, but now you're actually gonna kill him, right? Because we're living our lives, we're, we're becoming old men trying to protect you from this guy who's out to kill you and won't stop until he does. So you're gonna kill him, right? And if you're not, you're gonna let us do it, right? And David's like, we will never touch the Lord's anointed. We will not harm a hair on his head. We'll take his spear, which I think David may have had even a little PTSD because it might have been the same spear that was stuck in the wall right next to him. And he's trying to kill him. I'm going to take the spear. He's pretty good aim with that javelin. And he actually says this. He says, if the Lord wants him dead, then let the Lord strike him down himself. He may die on the battlefield. He may die by the sword, but he will not die by my hand. So here's David's interactions with his men, right? In these chapters leading up, David's men are strategizing around him. They're, they're planning an attack. They're like, how are we going to do it? Are we going to do it in the middle of the night? Are we going to try to poison his tea? Are we going to send somebody in undercover to assassinate him? What are we going to do? But David... By the time Saul dies, David had led his people in such a way that it was not just David who tore his clothes, but all his men did too. What does that say about him? If you're writing things down, write this down. Dishonor is a disease we were born with. Dishonor is a disease we were born with. It's not something you have to catch. It's something that you have from birth an inability to recognize the value in something. Dishonor is a disease we were born with. You don't have to work on it. You don't have to hone it. You're just good at it already. But honor, saints, honor changes culture. Honor changes culture. David honoring the anointing of the Lord on Saul shifted the culture of the men who followed him. And by the time this story, this chapter was closed, we see men who just a few chapters earlier wanted him dead are now in sackcloth and ashes mourning and fasting over the loss of that same man. Human nature saints will always seek to defeat its adversaries. I don't have to prove that to you. I don't have to try to research that. You know it because it's you. Human nature will always seek to defeat its adversaries, but anointing defends anointing. Anointing defends anointing. You see, when we're in circles of people who reinforce that broken nature, we must then become the leaders. We must then become the Davids who build reason around the counterculture we're establishing. You don't need to build reason or to justify the, uh, the, the dog-eat-dog thing. That's instinctive. It's instinctual. It's, it's, it's inside us. They're like, hey, this guy's out for me. If I kill him first, then I can sleep tonight. Hey, hey, this guy's my biggest business competitor. If I plan a, a marketing strategy or a campaign that I throw a little mud at him and I give myself a little boost at the same time, hey, 
It's a, it's a win, win, win for me because he loses. And saints, the thing that I, the thing that I want to point out here, the thing that I think is so important is that I would be kidding myself if, if I was to think that most of us, the vast majority of us spend the vast majority of our time in those circles of people, the ones who reinforce that broken nature, the men who even in their love for us and in their, their, their pursuit of our best interests, the ones who protect us are oftentimes the ones who are saying, finish him, finish him. Put this guy, he's, he's spiraling, David. He's insane. Finish him. That's another, that's another uh, one of the whys for the greenhouse movement here. Because we need Davids. We need Davids. You're not going to be a David every day. There will be days that you're the David everybody needs. And then there will be days that you need a David more than anybody else. Someone who will build reason with you. Who will bring you back to the word and remind you of what what it is that the father says about this. Remind you of the father's heart on this. Remind you that it's not worth holding this offense or this grudge or this bitterness. It's not worth poisoning and polluting your life and your calling and your family and your marriage to hang on to this thing. We need David's who will build reason around what the Father wants, who will build reason around the counterculture that we are establishing. Because see, without David's, without David's, we build reason around a baptized version of defeating our adversaries. We just whitewash it, just dip it, and I'm gonna speak Christianese about it, I'm gonna quote a little scripture, I'm gonna talk about how long I've been a Christian. This isn't my first rodeo. I know how this goes. That's everybody's favorite line to me because I'm young and I'm 23 years old and everybody's like, <laughs> I'm, I'm not kidding. Everybody's favorite line, Zach, this isn't my first rodeo. Clearly it's yours. In other words, clearly this is your first time. It's <laughs> my favorite. I love it because I am. I'm like super new at this. We, this is our first year. So anyway, <clears throat> thank you for bearing with us. This is a joke. Thanks, Pastor Tony. Without David's, we build reason around a baptized version of defeating our adversaries. We justify it. We justify it. We say, I'm praying for him. (laughs) But while I'm praying, I'm also talking a lot of trash. (laughs) And we get so good at it. We're so eloquent and poetic and articulate that we actually begin to fool ourselves that we're speaking life while assassinating people that God has anointed for a purpose in our lives. Why? Because we're still afraid of Saul. That's my favorite thing about David. He was more afraid of wounding Saul than he was of Saul himself. What if that was the, the bride of Jesus? What if there was a greater concern in us that we would cross a line and actually cause offense, cause a little one to stumble? or a big one, or a medium one? What if we were more concerned about that millstone necklace than we were about justifying ourselves or vindicating ourselves when the Bible tells us that he vindicates the righteous man? Oh, my Lord, help us. But then it gets real. 
So, yeah, so David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. Let's keep reading in verse 12. They mourned, and they wept, and they fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan, and for the people of the Lord, and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And verse 13 says, David turns to the young man who told him, the guy who brought this news, and he says, where are you from? And he answered, I'm the son of an alien, a stranger, an Amalekite. And David said to him this line, watch this. How is it you were not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? This idea of of not speaking out or stretching out or acting out against the Lord's anointed, we see it in the Psalms. In Psalms 105, um, there's one of David's songs um, and it was sung in First uh, uh, Chronicles 16 when they're carrying the ark in. And as David is celebrating what the Lord has done, he sings this song. And in it is this line, touch not the Lord's anointed, nor do his prophets any harm. And what's interesting is a thousand years before Pentecost, A thousand years before the fulfillment of the prophecy spoken of by Joel, when the Spirit of God is poured out on all flesh, that that upper room birth of the church, a thousand years before we could all lay claim to that Spirit of God, David understood that it was the Father's heart. Because when he says, touch not the Lord's anointed, he wasn't talking about himself as the spiritual leader of the nation. He was talking about the nation as the spiritual leader of the world. So what I'm telling you today is that I am the anointed one. And don't you dare stretch out your hand. Someone boo me off this stage, right? There it is. You guys are way better at that than the first service. I think, I think for too long, I think for too long, we have, we have read lines like this, touch not the Lord's anointed. And we say it, we quote it in King James because it's a little more, you know, it's more gravitas. It's more like, mm, because I'm saying this in King James, it has weight to it. <laughs> touch not the Lord's anointed. And that means don't challenge your spiritual leaders. Don't, don't offer a correction or a rebuke to your church leaders. Don't, uh, don't, don't, you, uh, you just have to accept whatever it is. And saints, my biggest issue with that is we, we have, uh, we have, um, we have chosen this path because it's less work for us, for, for all of us. It's less work for the people of God to just accept whatever their spiritual leader says as the gospel and, and well, that, that's what they said. That's what they told us to do this. They said to do that. They did this. And so instead of having to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh, because when we're walking in the Spirit, we ought to be discerning. We ought, we ought to be sensitive to, to what the Holy Spirit's revealing to us. Because guess what? Up here, like, yeah, there's anointing for leadership. Absolutely. I was reminded of that in like a really, really powerful way this week. When a couple of folks who had been praying and interceding for Ashley and I came in with a word from the Lord and shared it with us. And it was like so powerful and so moving because I believe that we are in a, in a season right now where we have to get this right. 
I'm not preaching this word today because I feel like um, personally that people are coming against me. Thank God. I don't, ha- I don't have to defend myself like that. But what I am preaching on this today is because I, I'm sensing that the enemy is, is um, on the offensive with confusion and chaos and dysfunction in the body. And he wants the breaking down. He wants the deconstruction of ecclesial authority. He wants a breakdown where, where the gifts of the Spirit are no longer acknowledged as part of the anointing, as part of the hand of God, but it's just this leveling of the field. That's not at all what this means. There's a truth here that we've got to get a hold of. But when David says, how were you not afraid? It's because he understood two things. Number one, he understood that the most important thing about a man's life is the hand of God upon him. The most important thing about a man's life is the hand of God upon him. We got to get this. We got to get this. Yeah. Is he trying to kill me? Yes. Is he chasing me? Yes. Has he run me out of my own country? Yes. Is he lying about me, accusing me of things? Yes. But the most important thing about Saul is that the hand of God is upon him. Tragically, we can acknowledge someone's anointing or someone's calling or, or the hand of God, but as soon as they act out in the flesh, as soon as they lose their grip on, on their discernment and their sensitivity and their walking in the spirit, as soon as that starts to go, the threat they pose to us eclipses whatever God was doing. God didn't stop doing that just because they did something to offend you. <laughs> ah. But God, you can't, you can't have your hand on that person's life anymore because they hurt my feelings. Isn't that just immediately the litmus test of whether or not God is moving in somebody? Of whether or not they offended me? Oh my God, if the bride would put her big girl pants on. <laughs> I'm a big kid now, bum bum. It drives me nuts. Because we, we, we choose blindness to the fact that God is still doing something. So number one, the most important thing about a, man, about a man's life is the hand of God upon him. And number two, because the father operates in the kairos and not the chronos, we can't always determine when the grace lifts and the spirit shifts. Has anybody in here heard teaching on the Kronos and the Kairos time? A couple of people? Okay. So it's going to be a review for a couple of folks in here. But there are two Greek words for time, and they're both translated most often in our Bibles as time uh, or some version of that word, but we, we have trouble telling the difference. And these two Greek words have very different meanings. You see, Kronos is kind of like what you might see on a watch. Um, uh, like a chronograph, and it, and it means uh, like the literal, physical, natural time, time that is kept by hands on a clock, by revolutions of the earth around the sun and the moon around the earth, 
calendars uh, and, and clocks and that sort of thing. And so if you see time as this line and everything that happens is a point on that line or the, the span between two points, that is chronos. But the Father, how many of you know, there is no time in heaven, right? A day is as a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. The Father is, uh, is time is inconsequential to him in the chronos um, sense of the word. But kairos is translated time as well, but it means more of like a, a spiritually appointed season, a divinely um, set aside uh, era or dispensation. It can be anything from five millennia to five minutes, and it doesn't actually matter what, what, how long it is in the chronos sense. It's that the Lord has, has, has marked this time, this season, for a purpose. That's the kind of time the Father operates in. And David, in this moment, refused to judge a kairos situation based on a chronos circumstance. And saints, we've got to get to that place where even though what's loud and in our face is the chronos, this happened on this day and he sent me this text message and I saved it and I screenshotted it and I have it on every computer that I own in case I ever have to take it to court. People send me like screenshots and emails trying to build a case. I'm like, I don't want to see this. I don't want to see any of this. Don't send me anything. Don't send me a text message. Don't send me an email. Don't send me anything. Just blow me a kiss from down the corridor, yeah? That's all I want from you. That's all I want from you, church. Don't send me screenshots. I don't have social media for a reason. Because I don't want to see that crap. Saints, we've got to get to that place where we refuse to judge a Kairos situation. What's the Kairos situation? That the anointing was on Saul. What's the Cairo situation? That God sent Samuel the prophet to anoint Saul in his fear, in his inferiority. And even as a response to the sinful desire of a nation, but God still had his hand upon him. Even when it says, and the spirit of God left Saul, right? Because we see the demon, we see the, these uh, demonic entities coming and beginning to influence him. But David recognized that just because he's seeing with his eyes this, this shift that's taking place in Saul, these are things marked by the chronos. These are things that are uh, circumstantial and do not play into the situational truth of the Kairos fact that God has appointed Saul as king. And it must be God who determines when that is over. What if we were that big? If the Kairos Kronos thing is confusing, I'm going to explain it like this because it is important that we understand it for this fact. See, we can judge fruit, but our judgment is bound to the Kronos. It's bound to the season. You can walk up to a tree in the middle of its winter and see there's no fruit on it, but you can't say this tree is not fruitful. You can only say that in its fruit-bearing season. It's the difference between the Kairos and the Kronos. You see, winter um, does not determine that that tree is unfruitful just because that's a season when it's not bearing fruit. Well, I can judge fruit. The Bible says judge fruit. I'm not telling you not to judge fruit. I'm telling you not to judge fruitfulness because you may have walked up to a tree in the middle of its winter. Now, if it's 
the fruit-bearing season, we see Jesus, right, sending that, uh, sending that fig tree back from where it came, right? Why? Because it had no fruit in a season when it ought to. But Saul had entered a season that was predestined for him because the Lord was looking to transition, to move things along into another administration, into a new authority, one that reflected his heart and not the people's selfish desire. So I want to close here. If you keep reading, he says, David calls to one of his young men in verse 15, and he says, hey, you see that guy? Go cut him down. Cut him down. So he struck him and he died. And David said to him, as he lay dying, he said, your blood is on your own head, for your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. You see, when I said earlier that defending, that that anointing defends anointing, the irony of us cutting each other down with our words, the irony of us um, adding insult to injury or finding someone who, who just, hey, let's just do them a favor and put them out of their misery. The irony of that is the same anointing. It's the same spirit. The thing that unites us is the spirit of God. His selection upon us, the outpouring of his Holy Spirit upon his people, that's the anointing. God doesn't cut himself up into a little, bunch of little pieces and put one on everybody. No, he pours out his spirit in a way that it is indistinguishable the difference between God's hand on us. Now, we're called to different things, and we're given different assignments and different gifts to carry out those assignments. But the irony of how, of how we speak death over each other is that to defeat the Lord's anointing over someone else is to defeat it upon yourself. You can't divide it. In fact, Jesus says a kingdom divided cannot stand. And anything that brings division among what God brings together has only done one thing, and that is remove itself from his selection. If you've ever been married by an old school preacher, somebody at the front, they read, they, they read this in the King James. It's got to be King James or the marriage certificate is null and void. What God brings together, let no man tear asunder. Anybody in here, was that said at your wedding? That's why you are not asunder. Whatever that means. We'll be renewing vows for anybody that didn't receive that after church today. We could do it like the Moonies and just marry like 500 couples at a time. No, just maybe not. Okay, not today, Satan. But the deal is this. The deal is that when God provides a measure of his spirit for the sake of unity, we have no power over that except for how it affects us. I cannot speak death and bring division, I can only remove myself from the unity that has already been created. And so when we look back over the Saul's in our lives, when we look back over, over the, the, the churches and the leaders and the movements that have failed us, that have pursued us, that have overtaken us, 
that have sought our lives, guys, we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful because in stretching out our hand, and usually it's not our hand. We're not usually going around burning churches down and doing drive-bys at parsonages and stuff like that. No, it's our mouths. It's our words speaking what's in our hearts. David says it of this own guy, for by your own mouth, by your own mouth, you have cursed yourself. You've testified against yourself. Anything that brings division among what God brings together has only removed itself from the equation. I know that there are a lot of wounds represented in this room. I know there's a lot of hurt. I know there are people watching online right now and you have not set foot in a church since you were unjustly accused or since you were, since you were um, I used to call it dismembered from the church, but <laughs> say, you know, kicked out, I'll say that. Dismembered means something else, although sometimes it feels like that's happening too. I know that there are people here and this was your Hail Mary. We're gonna give it one more shot. And for those of you that, and th- that this is your story, here's the hard truth. Just because you have found a cave full of people like yourself, full of wounded uh, warriors who have been in the ditches, who have been in the fight, does not mean that this is a cave in which you can kill Saul the first chance you get. Honor changes culture. And the church is desperate for a change. See, even the way that we talk about the old things, and I got to be careful because I'm this guy. You'll hear me say it up here. You'll hear me say, talk about something like, oh, that's the old way. But we say it with this sort of disgust, like out with the old, in with the new. When even Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. What? But the law is what's about to put you on the cross, Jesus. I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. You see, the Lord isn't isn't drawing a line in the sand every so many years or so many decades or so many generations and say, that didn't work. Let's start over. Maybe with Noah, but even still, he preserved Noah. His anointing was carried through that storm, that season, and across that threshold. And saints, my greatest concern is that for anyone in this room and every one of you who has called on the name of Jesus, you have invited the Holy Spirit to come and live in your life, to lead you, to guide you. That does not insulate us from being wounded by other believers. Somebody can just say amen to that because like, we, it's just true, right? That's just true. It doesn't insulate us. It doesn't mean that we'll never be hurt any more than it meant for Jesus. What it does mean, though, it means that we have something to protect. 
And we have something to guard, and the number one way we guard it is with our words in speaking life and looking back at the one who's pursued us and looking from this hill across the valley and over to that hill and saying, I love you. I love you. And I'm not just praying imprecatory prayers for you behind your back. I love you. And I want life for you. And I want to see you restored to whatever glory God has for you in this season. Whatever's happened along the way, I'm not carrying that. I'm not carrying that. I don't need to make a statement. I don't need to prove a point. What I need to do is I need to be a church that sees the anointing on people's lives. I need to be a church. I need to be a bride. I need to be a son or a daughter who, who, who can look at people without being blinded by uh, how it's affected my flesh, the inconvenience or the discomfort that it's brought me, the, 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 the assassination of my reputation that's happened along the way. Would you stand with me, saints? I want to close by just saying this that if we can accept this truth for ourselves and we can allow judgment to begin here in the house of the Lord in our own hearts, if we can allow judgment to start here to say, wait a minute, I I need to change the way I've been talking about this church or that pastor. I need to change the way that I've been talking about this, this group that I used to be a part of or this movement that used to happen. If we can feel a little conviction and we can respond with repentance, I want to tell you, what this looks like extended to you. What it means, saints, is it means that anyone who's acted against your anointing, anyone who's spoken death over you, anyone who has sought to divide and remove you from that fold, they brought death on themselves. So there's a Saul and a David in this equation. And Saul, who should have acknowledged that anointing on David's life, who shouldn't have felt threatened by it, but honored that he would be his his predecessor. Yeah. Should have felt honored to be a father figure for a young man who, who, who was rejected by his own father. Who should have felt honored to warm up a seat that a young man was going to take and pass on to the king of kings and the Lord of lords who would rule on it forever. But instead of that, no. All he could feel was inferiority. All he could do was act out of his own envy. I don't want to be that guy. I want to be the David who, in spite of all of that, still sees the anointing still sees the hand of God as the most important part about that ministry, about that life, about that pastor, about that church. I think back on, and I, man, writing this was so convicting to me because, I mean, there have been seasons where, you know, I'm just reminded like, hey, oh, brother, you don't want to hear what that pastor has been saying about you. You're right. So don't tell me. Oh, you don't want, I went to this church. You can't believe what they're saying about King's Academy. Yes, I can. We're all broken. If I'm not on guard, I'll be, I'll be saying it. 
We've got to guard not just ourselves, but each other. Yeah. Yes. We've got to speak life over each other. We've got to be willing to acknowledge that just because something's finished in its usefulness to you doesn't mean that God has ended a Cairo season over that thing. Yes, sir. And when a bride rises up with that boldness and that conviction, culture will change. Yes, sir. So, Lord, we thank you this morning. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the cross. And we thank you, Lord, that we come in under this identity as your sons and daughters. I thank you, Lord, that, that as Jesus was, was accused and beaten and mocked and ridiculed and chased for his very life, God, I thank you that all the way to the cross, he was pleading for their forgiveness. He was pleading uh, not that they would uh, stop being so annoying and, and disruptive to him and his ministry, but that they would be forgiven by you, Father. God, I pray that that spirit would settle into the deep places in us. Lord, I pray that our eyes would be open to acknowledge the fact that your spirit is your anointing. And it's your selection on the sons and daughters of God. And Lord, who are we? Who are we? Lord, not one of us can open up the scroll, but the lamb, only the lamb. And so, Lord, we trust you. We trust your hand. God, open our eyes to, to, to acknowledge the way that, that um, Lord, even, even as we take inventory of our pasts, and our wounds and our experiences. God, help us to, to swell with gratitude over the fact that we have been wronged in places that have moved us and shifted us and changed our trajectory yeah, yeah. such that we would be driven closer to you than ever before. God, I thank you that in the caves that David was chased into and hid in by Saul, that each cave, each place, each dark depth was an opportunity for him to be driven closer to you and more intimate with you. And God, may it be said of us today, may we be the ones who take on that burden of acknowledging and seeing and honoring your anointing, even when it hurts, just like you did. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, God bless you guys. Have the best day of your lives. Go in peace. This is Pastor Zach, and you've been listening to HPC Sermon Notes. Love you guys. God bless you and have the best day of your life.